So that's what we did last week. That's what we'll do next week. But this week, we are on the page with the letter number three that says the preterist view of Revelation. Now, with the futurist view of, re, of Revelation, uh, of course, the word futurist means something that's going to happen in the future. And the futurist view of Revelation, it was not just future from the time it was written. Uh, it's the majority of it from chapter 4 onward is still future in our day for things to come at the end um, time before Christ returns. That's the futurist view. Now, the preterist view, the word preterist, the root is, is praetor, and, it come, and that means past. So if futurism has a futurist fulfillment, then preterist believes that the book of Revelation contains fulfillments that have happened in our past. That means the preterists believe that from Revelation chapter 4 onward, and we'll explain kind of the different views of that, those prophecies have already been fulfilled in our past. Therefore, they are not in our future. They are in our past. They were future from the time John wrote them, but they would come to pass within uh, a few years after the writing of John to these churches. So what is the Preterist view? The Preterist view sees Revelation as largely fulfilled in actual events that have now already happened. Uh, again, uh, more about this view on our paper. I kind of, I kind of jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, preterist comes from Latin praetor, which means past. There are two schools of thought when you talk about what is preterism and the preterist view of Revelation. One is called full preterism, and one is called partial preterism. Uh, full preterism sees the entire prophecy of Revelation as already being fulfilled. Everything from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22, everything has been fulfilled. There is nothing literal yet to be fulfilled in our future from the full preterist position. The other school of this view is called partial preterism. And partial preterism is definitely a more orthodox view. Uh, what is called full preterism uh, is oftentimes called hyper preterism uh, because it's seen as taking these things you know, too far, even outside the realm of orthodoxy. So many of your full preterists would deny a physical return of Jesus to the earth, would, deny, would say that even the resurrection, judgment, and the eternal state have already taken place and that our afterlife comes when we die, not with a physical event on the earth. And when we die, we go and we spend eternity in heaven with Christ and that we have been spiritually resurrected when we die and we receive a new body. So they see nothing in Revelation as literally being fulfilled in our future. Partial preterists uh, are held more in uh, line with the orthodox beliefs of the church. There have been many renowned Bible scholars that were and are partial preterists. The difference is partial preterists believes from chapter 4 to about chapter 19 as being fulfilled in the past. But the events, there are still some events yet to come, being the return of Christ, the second coming, the final judgment, uh, a general resurrection of the dead, and uh, literal new heavens and new earth. And the thing that drives you know, the partial preterists is really the, 
the creeds of the church have always affirmed of these things. There are certain key end time things that you know the church has generally agreed upon, being the second coming, uh, you know, and the resurrection and uh, the eternal states, things like that. And so your partial preterists the majority of the middle portion of Revelation as being fulfilled in the past, but yet still see some future fulfillment as well. So that's your two major views of preterism. According to this view, here's how your preterists approach the book of Revelation. Most preterists fix the events in Revelation with the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and possibly of Rome later on. There are some preterists that see everything as being fulfilled in AD 70, some being fulfilled in AD 70, and some being fulfilled later with uh, the demise of the Roman Empire. Uh, According to the view of preterists, the biblical last days are not the last days of human history, but they were the last days of the old covenant age. Preterists see Matthew 24, as being fulfilled in AD 70, Luke 19, the Olivet Discourse as being fulfilled, that when Jesus talks about the events that were to take place at the end, Jesus wasn't speaking of events that take place thousands of years. He was speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So what this of you has its foundation upon is really Matthew's, Matthew 24's, um, uh, the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. For he walks out of the temple and he says, look at all of these buildings of the temple. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And then he goes on, his disciples ask him, well, when will these things be? Uh, What will be the sign of your coming? And he begins to talk about signs. Now, when Jesus begins to talk about signs, your futurists put all of those signs in the future, signs of the end times. Preterists put those signs in their generation. For you get around verse Uh, 30-ish of Matthew 24, and Jesus says, all these things will be fulfilled in this generation. And so when Jesus says that, your preterists say, well, what Jesus says literally, and those things would be fulfilled in that generation, which parallel the book of Revelation. So that's how those two are connected in the preterist view. So this view sees uh, the old covenant age with the judgment on Jerusalem as the fulfillment of the judgments in the book of Revelation. In the series of the Jewish-Roman wars leading up between, you know, between the mid-60s and AD 70, there was the, the Roman-Jewish wars during that time and the persecution of Nero. Uh, so all of those events, preterists believe, fit the scheme of the book of Revelation. So they believe the last days are not the last days of human history, but the last days of the Old Covenant age. The view sees the coming of Christ as not a literal physical coming, but sees the coming of Christ as a coming in judgment. Now, that is established back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have scriptures, I don't think I referenced any, but in the Old Testament, you have scriptures of God coming on the clouds. But God comes on the clouds, not in a physical form. He comes on the clouds as a form of judgment upon a nation. And you see that that goes back to the apocalyptic language. So with God coming on the clouds, you know, with this apocalyptic doomsday language that's used in the Old Testament, your preterists say, well, the coming of Christ is not a literal coming, but it is a coming in judgment upon Jerusalem. How God used the Roman armies to come in and, you know, 
overcome Jerusalem, destroy the temple and the sacrifice and the priesthood. And, and you know, that was the end of the Old Covenant age. You could not keep the Old Covenant. Uh, you could not have the temple and the priesthood. That was the total end of the Old Covenant age and the beginning of really the church's full separation from Judaism. So that's where they place this coming of Christ as a coming in judgment and the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies in Matthew 24. Uh, in the middle of that paragraph, Revelation's main focus of attention is this. Here's, according to the preterist, this is Revelation's focus. That God will soon judge the first century Jews for rejecting and crucifying His Son, their Messiah. John states this theme in his introduction at Revelation 1.7. Let me read to you Revelation 1.7. I can't believe I didn't write out the scripture there. Revelation 1.7 says this. That's 1 John 1.7. That's not going to work. That will not work. So I'm going to try Revelation next. Let's see if that works. Here's what Revelation 1.7 says. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So that's kind of where your preterists find their opening statement for the book of Revelation. That he is coming with the clouds, which they would refer to as a judgment coming. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And they would take that literally. That literally those in the first century that you know, pierced Christ and saw him die. Uh, every eye will see him. And all the tribes of the earth, uh, a preterist would say that is not the earth, that would be better translated the tribes of the land, speaking back to Israel. Uh, the tribes of the earth will see him and will on account of him. So that would be your theme from the preterist view, that Christ is coming in judgment. Uh, just after this, he declares the nearness of the events. We looked at that in our introduction. And this is where really the preterists have an upper hand in some aspects over the futurists. Because they interpret these soon to take place, soon to come to pass. They take those phrases literally. That mean these are soon to come to pass in their day. Um, a theme directly relevant to the first century circumstances. So that's kind of your overview of what the preterists believe. That the biblical last days were the last days of the Old Covenant age. That Revelation talks about things that Jesus did in Matthew 24, both Matthew 24 and Revelation place these things in the near future. Revelation's focus is on judgment on first century Jerusalem. Now getting into some of the details of what um, preterists believe. And what I did is I kind of spent more time talking about how the preterists interpret Revelation because we're less familiar with that. When the futurist view, I you know, honed in more on what's the foundation of their beliefs because many of us you know, know the beliefs of futurism but kind of the undergird of that. So I spent a little different emphasis on both of, of these. But the second paragraph under, according to this view, um, the seven sealed scroll in chapter 5, according to your preterist, is a bill of divorce against unfaithful Israel, containing the judgments that would come upon them. This corresponds to the scroll of lament and woe in Ezekiel 2, 9, and 10 leading to the marriage of the Lamb. So basically, your preterists see the divorce of unfaithful Israel and the marriage to 
the church made up of Jew and Gentile. So they see that's what's played out. And chapter 5 is a scroll of divorcement with the, judge, with the judgments playing out over Jerusalem. After the judgments on Jerusalem, then there is the marriage of the Lamb, which is the church in the, uh, the later part of Revelation. The seals, trumpets, and bowls in Revelation describe the Roman war with the Jews that lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the sevenfold nature of the judgments on Israel recall the covenantal curse that God threatens on Israel in the Old Testament. We find in Leviticus 26, uh, 18, if Israel was unfaithful to their covenant, it says, If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. So what do we see in Revelation? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. So your preterist would go back to Leviticus and the pronunciation of judgment there on, on unfaithful Israel. Another major theme in the book of Revelation, and this is for you know, futurist and preterist, is the theme of the martyrs. You find this theme over and over again. In fact, I believe that's one of the major themes, and we'll probably mention that when we talk about the idealist view, is that there were those... We have to look at the context. There were those in Israel that were being, I mean, those in Revelation in the churches that were being persecuted. Those who were dying, literally giving their lives as martyrs. The futurists believe in the future. There will, be, there will come a time of great tribulation where there will be martyrs that will be killed. And the blood of these martyrs will cry out unto God. And these judgments are really God's vindication for the martyrs, the judgment on the persecutors and the vindication of the martyrs. And the major theme with the martyrs in the book of Revelation for futurists and preterists is that even through death, you will conquer. Even through death, you will reign with Christ. And the picture is Jesus. In chapter 4 and 5, you, you see John beholding, uh, you know, a uh, you know, who's worthy to open the scroll? And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a slain lamb. Signifying that through Jesus' death, not because Jesus led a great military rebellion, but through Jesus' death, the lamb became a lion. Jesus became king through his death. Jesus ruled through being slain. And the message for the martyrs is the same thing. That you will rule and reign with Christ through your death. But yet God will, God will vindicate and judge your persecutors and avenge your blood. So the martyrs in Revelation are those who Jesus said their blood would be avenged upon the contemporary generation. Now, that's the preterist view of that. Let me read that to you as well. And again, I'll spend a little more time on that because you know, we're probably not familiar with this as most. When you go to Matthew chapter 23, which if I have to tell you is before Matthew 24, in case y'all didn't know that, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 23. Again, the major theme for preterists and futurists is this theme of the martyrs. But in verse number 34 of the book of Matthew, Matthew 23, 34, this is what Jesus says. And he's speaking to 
the scribes and the Pharisees that are gathered around. Jesus is doing what is called a woe oracle, taken strictly from the Old Testament prophets. And he's pronouncing woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe unto you, woe unto you. He gets down to verse 34 and he says this, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Now again, Jesus is speaking of his contemporary audience there. Because his disciples would literally go out and they would literally persecute and kill the prophets and the disciples of Jesus. And he says, some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And then listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 35. So that on you, and the preterists would say you there is very important because it means those, that generation that Jesus is speaking to. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So that is where your preterists tie the martyrs to Jesus' words here that would come upon their generation. So according to the preterist view, the martyrs in Revelation are those who Jesus said their blood would be avenged upon that generation. According to the preterist view, Babylon in Revelation is seen as Jerusalem who Jesus pronounces judgment upon uh, in the verses right after the ones that I just read. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, how I would have gathered you together, but you would not. Behold, your temple, your house is left to you desolate, is what Jesus says there. So Babylon in the book of Revelation is seen as Jerusalem. Um, some preterists, you know, will see, still see it as, as Rome, the futurists see Babylon as a future revived Roman Empire. Uh, so you still have to have you know, some type of Babylon there. So preterists see Babylon as Jerusalem, who Jesus pronounced in judgment upon. Babylon is described as the great city. The great city is mentioned in Revelation 11, 8, 14, 8, 18, 10. This city is, quoting Revelation 11, 8, is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So we know the Lord was crucified at Jerusalem, right outside the city. Jerusalem is also pictured in Revelation as the harlot, unfaithful Israel riding a beast. So that's how your preterists see some of these symbols. They see Babylon as Jerusalem. You see the, the harlot, which again, if you go back to the Old Testament, Israel is seen as a harlot, as an unfaithful wife. And the harlot is riding a beast. And the beast of preterists as the Roman Empire, or Nero, because it was from the Romans and the Jews that the church was persecuted in the first century. So when you take Jerusalem and Rome, they were kind of persecuting the church. Then we see in history, Rome turns against Jerusalem. And guess what? That's what you find in Revelation 17 and 18, you find the beast turning against the woman and making war with her. And that's what happens in history. Uh, so that's the beast is viewed, again, as the Roman Empire or the Emperor Nero specifically, uh, the Roman Empire generally. 
And here's why your preterists believe that Nero is the beast in Revelation. Uh, the first century spelling of Nero Caesar's name, if you were to take Nero Caesar and write it in Hebrew, it adds up to the exact value of 666. So that aligns up there. And of course, you know, you make it do that with other names. I know back in the 80s, you know, people thought Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist because there were six letters in, every, in all three of his names. Uh, so there's been a lot of trying to figure out, but uh, Nero certainly fits that going, writing his name in Hebrew. Uh, another reason that they believe Nero was the beast is the emperors of the Roman Empire in the first century also line up with the, pro- with the prophecy in Revelation 17, 10, and 11. The first seven Caesars of Rome are, are Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, Claudius. Then there's Nero and then Galba. So those are the first. And, and again, again, there's debates on that. You know, Futurists would say you don't start with Julius Caesar. You start um, with Augustus. You know, if you want to figure that out or, you know, it's something totally different in the future. So there's many variations. But according to the Preterists, these are the first seven. And then your prophecy in Revelation is the first five have fallen. They are dead. That would be Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, and Claudius. The sixth is, that is Nero. And the seventh will come and remain a little while. And that would be Galba. Um, After Nero's 13-year rule, Galba would only reign for seven months. So they see a direct correlation between Revelation's prophecy in Revelation 17 and the first century Caesars. So those are some of the things that your, some of the symbolism that your preterists see. And again, they try to line things up with what happened in the first century. And just like with the historicist view, I mean, the historicist view, you can look at some of the things, you can say, man, I can see how that makes sense. With the preterist view, you can also look at it and see you know, some of that makes sense. So the positive, and but we'll show why that may not be true in just a moment. But the positive aspects of the preterist view is, first of all, the preterist view takes literally and makes the most sense out of time statement passages that we looked at in the previous lessons. 1-1, 1-3, 1-19, things that must shortly come to pass. These, these things will soon take place. You know, those that pierced him will see him. They make the most sense out of those statements, taking them plain and literal. Your futurist would look at those statements, and they would say these statements do not have to be interpreted as soon and near as we would first think. Your futurist would say these words mean quickly, quickly, that when these things start to happen, which could be thousands of years in the future, they will happen quickly when they begin to happen. Uh, And there's semantics and debates on these words and how they're used and uh, all of this. So there's a great debate in, obviously, if you take soon to be soon, near to be near, shortly come to pass, it's really come to pass, that favors your preterist view. You know, if you semantically look at language and, you know, say, well, that's not always the case, it can mean quickly, uh, then you can make a case for a futurist view. So, the time statements have always been a little hang-up on, you know, futurist view, but there's other things that the preterist view gets hung up on as well. Again, there's probably no perfect view out there. There's always positives and negatives. Uh, the second positive aspect is preterism makes the book relevant to the original readers. It holds true to an epistle that if this whole book was written, and it was written to seven literal churches, 
in the first century, and it was things that shortly come to pass, then it made it very relevant to those readers. If not, he might be scaring these readers for no reason at all. You know, saying all these things are coming, but really jokes on you, they'll happen 2,000 years in the future, not to you. Um, so it makes it very relevant to the writers there. However, on the other side, it makes it, can make it irrelevant to all the believers that come after these events take place. You know, why, why do we need to know the things of Revelation if they've already happened? So that's the negative side of that positive aspect. So the positive aspect, it meant something <coughs> to the original readers. Uh, just like, you know, going back to the name or the number of the beast. He said, he that has wisdom, let him calculate the number of the beast. Well, those people reading that, if the beast wouldn't come for 2,000 years, they're trying to calculate all these names, <laughs> and there ain't nobody there to calculate. Uh, so again, you have to look at those aspects when you look at the overall book of Revelation. Um, preterist you know, holds true to uh, the epistle of the letter. It also agrees with Jesus' Olivet Discourse, according to the preterist view, it agrees with Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Uh, this view agrees impressively with the history of the Jewish war recorded by Josephus. You will hear a lot of preterists, they'll talk about the time statements, and they'll talk about Josephus. Now, who's Josephus? Josephus was a historian a Jewish historian, and he recorded the most detailed account of the Roman Jewish wars. He was not a Christian. He was not trying to write scripture. He was giving a historical account of the Jewish-Roman war. And the printers love Josephus because there's a lot of things in Josephus that they feel they can pull from uh, that would support their view. One of the things Josephus writes he literally talked about at one time when the Romans had come in, it said, we saw as if it were chariots up in the sky circling Jerusalem in the clouds. So predators jump all over that, you know, because it seems to support their uh, view. Uh, not everybody, you know, holds Josephus to the highest standards or say that it proves this, but predators love Josephus because it seems to help them. Uh, it also renders emperor passages like 13 and 18 intelligible. We talked about those. So there's some of the positive aspects of the preterist view. Um, other things uh, I'll mention in the preterist view, this isn't necessarily positive aspects. I just didn't mention them earlier. In our previous page, when I put the key teachings of the dispensational view, I said the dispensational view is built on these presuppositions of theology that form the view. Well, the preterist view, you can take those and really look at the exact opposite. Turn back a page to where it says key teachings of dispensational views. I should have done this earlier, but, and I'll just show you what I mean as how preterism differs from futurism. So your key teachings of the dispensational view, I put number one, the dispensational view has a distinction between two covenant peoples of God, Israel and the church. So the church must be raptured off so that God can restore Israel and his covenant with them. Preterism is the exact opposite. They do not hold to two covenant peoples of God that there is only one. So because there's one, you know, there's no need for uh, a rapture. There's no need for, you know, that Israel doesn't have a national place in the future with God. Israel's future is in Christ by shown on the day of Pentecost because the first church were Jewish people. 
And Peter stands up, and Peter says, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, saying what God is doing here at Pentecost, this is what Joel prophesied. So if God set Israel aside at the cross, why is he fulfilling Old Testament prophecy to Israel in the book of Acts? Uh, so you have to... Preterism does not see this distinction as two covenant people. And in fact, futurism outside of the dispensational view did not see two covenant peoples of God either. Um, on number two, the dispensational view is dependent upon the interpretation of Daniel 9. As I said last week, to have the futurist view, you have to have a gap in Daniel of thousands of years. Preterists do not see a gap in Daniel. They read it as 400 literal years. So there's a difference there. Um, number four here, the dispensationalists see the kingdom is being delayed and the, the kingdom will be fulfilled uh, in Christ's literal 1,000-year reign in Jerusalem. Uh, preterists believe that Jesus brought the kingdom and the kingdom is an absolute present reality now and Jesus is ruling from David's throne, just not in Jerusalem but in heaven. Uh, and then number five, the dispensational view teaches Israel must rebuild the temple, reinstate the priests or the animal sacrifices. That's not a scenario in the preterist because they believe that already happened uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, when Jesus said, I believe it's in Luke 21, Jesus told his disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then you will know the desolation is near. Um, so in the preterist view, that scenario with the temple and the priests has already happened. So you can see the differences in between the two views there. So that's just some extra stuff I wanted to point out. We looked at the positive aspects of preterism. So what's the critical aspects? Because there are critical aspects with the preterist view as well. Here's the biggest critical aspect with the preterist view. The majority of Bible scholars, the majority of Bible teachers, if you have a study Bible, Every one of them, just about, will say the book of Revelation was written around A.D. 95. So if you have a view that is based on A.D. 70, and a book that wasn't written until A.D. 95, how many of you know that, that, that math doesn't work out too well? So to a preterist, you have to have the book of Revelation written before A.D. 70. If the book of Revelation was written after AD 70, then this form of the preterist view is not true at all because it would have been written after these events had taken place. Now, there are some preterists, probably more in the academic world, that would that's told to the book of Revelation written in 95 and see these fulfillments as soon. But they see it as soon being the, um, the fall of the Roman Empire that was persecuting the church in the late first century. However, the problem with that, though, is Rome wasn't, it didn't come crashing down. It wasn't destroyed in a great destruction. Rome gradually faded off, uh, which doesn't seem to fit uh, the way Babylon is fallen in the book of Revelation. So, there's issues even if you're a preterist that believe the book of Revelation was written later about the Roman Empire, not about Jerusalem. So just as I mentioned last week, 
The futurist view, especially the dispensational view, lives and dies with Daniel 9. You have to have a seven-year gap because uh, you don't find you know, that period anywhere else other than Daniel. The preterist view lives and dies with when the book was written. So those are your two views and the two things that hinge both of those views. The, the, 80, the prior to 8070 writing of Revelation, it is defensible. You can defend it, um, but it's debated and not widely held at all. So that's a knock against the preterist. Uh, another critical aspect of an early writing of Revelation seemed the, the critics would say the historical view of the seven churches. In chapters 2 and 3, you have the seven churches and their conditions, how Jesus sees them. The critical view is that the historical view of these churches don't line up perfectly with a pre-80-70 culture. Uh, Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Now when Paul writes to Ephesus in the, in the book of Ephesians, they are a thriving congregation. And that was probably written in the early 50s. They were a thriving congregation. When John writes to Ephesus, they're a church that's basically lifeless. And the critics of the Preterist view says that probably wouldn't happen within 15 years or so. So that fits more later on at the end of the first century. Now, that's relaying common, you know, some, some opinion of that and common sense, but there are other things they point out that says the seven churches fit more the cultural setting after AD 70, which would be a knock against the Preterist view. Uh, critics say this view renders the book irrelevant to the church today. That's what we mentioned earlier. The Preterist view, if true, makes a lot of sense to the first century believers. The Preterist view if true, wouldn't seem to speak very much to us today. Uh, you know, it wouldn't you know, literally mean anything to us today if these things have already happened. So that is a critical view of the Preterist view, is that why do we even need the book of Revelation if that is true? Uh, however, there are some things in the Bible that have already happened that we don't throw away. The birth of Jesus. So we're all preterists in one aspect because the Bible prophesies the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. We read those uh, at Christmas time. Well, if we believe that that literally happened, then that's a preterist view of the birth of Christ. Uh, but we still keep those things around. We don't throw away the narratives of the birth of Christ because just because Jesus isn't being born in our lifetime. So, you know, there's a whole lot of ifs and hows when you approach that. But that is a critique against the preterist view is the fact that what would it mean to us today if it was fulfilled in the first century? Uh, another critique of the preterist view is the full preterist position that denies the creedal and historical beliefs of the church, being the second coming, uh, the final judgment, and the resurrection. Again, full preterism denies those things, uh, which is seen as outside the realm of orthodoxy. Uh, but however, partial preterism is, you know, has been generally accepted as a true orthodox view of Revelation. Um, also, the critics uh, would be critical of the preterist view because it denies a future for national Israel. You know, many critics of the preterist view say there are still promises and prophecies to be fulfilled to Israel as a nation. 
that God did not literally fulfill to them. So therefore, they will need to be fulfilled in the future. So, you know, there's a lot of things that make sense, you know, with the preterist view from a historical standpoint. But again, there's also some caution areas of, you know, why you should seriously consider some of these uh, critiques against that. Uh, but that's the major view of your preterist standing opposite to the futurist view. Now, on the back of that paper, number four, number four, the idealist view of Revelation. This is a lot shorter. I spent more time on the preterist view, but the idealist view of Revelation. This is our fourth and last view, somewhat. What is the idealist view? The idealist view does not take a literal historical or a futuristic fulfillment of anything in the book of Revelation, but sees the entire book as symbolic as a symbolic presentation of the battle between good and evil. So the idealists, don't t- don't, they don't hitch their wagon to things that happened in the past that they have to defend. They don't hitch their wagon to things in the future that may or may not come true. So they don't have to worry about you know, either of those things. They take the book of Revelation as a spiritual guide to believers. And realistically, a spiritual guide to believers in any age throughout history that would suffer persecution from the governments, from the state, from a leader. And it's speaking to those in every age who would suffer persecution. And it's speaking to those who suffer persecution with this encouragement. Hold on because Jesus wins and you will win in the end. That's basically what it is. Uh, the symbols in Revelation, this, according to this view, the symbols in Revelation are not tied to specific events, but point to themes throughout church history. The seals, bowls, and trumpets speak over and over again to the events of human history in every age and give believers of all ages an exhortation to remain faithful in the face of suffering. Okay, there's always going to be wars in every generation. There's always going to be famines in every generation. There's always going to be hunger, poverty, sickness. There's always going to be you know, ungodly nations that oppress and persecute the church. Uh, there's always going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and plagues and pestilences. You know, what's happening in our world today, even though it's strange to us, it's not strange to human history. Uh, so the idealists would say the book of Revelation speaks to the church in all ages because history repeats itself. We all go through difficult times. We all go through persecution. Even though it's amazing that even though we in America, and many people that hold to the futurist view would say this, well, one day there's coming a seven-year tribulation period. One day they're going to chop our heads off for believing in Christ. Not if you're a pre-trib person. If you're mid-trib or post-trib, you would say that. You know, one day they're going to chop believers' heads off. You know, one day they're going to shut down all of our churches and tell us when and where we can't worship. That's literally a viewpoint from us as an American. Because on the other side of the globe, those things are already happening. You go to China, you go to Russia... You go to Africa, you go to Egypt, you go to the Middle East and say, one day tribulation's coming and they're going to tell you you can't worship in public and they're going to chop your head off. And those people are going to look at you crazy because they have lived that their whole lives. They have lived that 
their absolute whole lives. Uh, and so has the church in almost every age previously. So while we in America are waiting for tribulation, the church that hasn't lived in our time has always experienced tribulation. Always experienced, and, and you can look back and people draw parallels where there's always been antichrist type leaders that rise up and want you to worship them or want world dominion. They look at Hitler and they look at all these other ones and say, you know, this isn't one man antichrist. Antichrist is somebody that's repeated all throughout history in different generations. And here's how you respond as believers when an antichrist type leader rises up and wants you to worship him and brings persecution to you and, you know, uh, kills believers and martyrs them. So that's what the idealistic view has going for them, that it's not tied to anything in the past or the future, that it speaks relevantly to every the church in, in every generation to encourage them in the midst of persecution. Um, in the middle of that paragraph, the beast from the sea may be identified as the satanically inspired political opposition to the church in any age. Uh, the beast from the land represents pagan or corrupt uh, religion to Christianity or of Christianity. Uh, you know, there's always been true Christians, and sometimes there has been Christians who uh, uh, were corrupt and loved power and money more than they loved Christ. So you have a political beast and a religious beast. Uh, catastrophes represents God's displeasure with sinful man. However, sinful mankind goes to these catastrophes while still refusing to turn uh, sinful mankind goes to these catastrophes while still refusing to turn and repent. So idealists would say, hey, guess what? Uh, plague, pestilence, wars, everything going today. That's the book of Revelation being fulfilled, but not from a futurist standpoint. It's us and our generation and God giving people the chance to repent. And there will be those that would harden their heart and not repent. Uh, and they would say this happens in every age. So, there's, so that's how the book of Revelation is relevant without being literal, tied to a future uh, scenario. And ultimately, God triumphs in the end, and as I said before, even through death. Uh, more about this view, the allegorical approach to Revelation was introduced uh, by the ancient church father Origen, made prominent by Augustine. Uh, many combine this view with, um, with their own ideas of their day. Oftentimes, idealists can sometimes be um, lumped together with a preterist view. Uh, that's very common. Uh, less common is a futurist idealist view. Most scholars hold to at least a partial idealist view or an idealist preterist view. So they kind of combine the preterist view because of some of the historical aspects, but yet hold to the idealist view so that it still speaks to believers in every age. Uh, and most of those hold to a late date of uh, Revelation. Contemporary adherents uh, are some of, you know, G.K. Bill, I showed you that huge commentary last week. Uh, so a lot of your scholarly, most of your what I would call evangelical believers and schools, they preach a futurist view. Your academic world, you know, your universities and colleges would take more of an idealistic slash some form of a preterist approach uh, to Revelation. The positive aspects of the idealist view, you don't have to worry about hitching it to anything. <laughs> you don't have to worry about who Nero was in the past or who the Antichrist is in the future. It doesn't matter to you, and you don't have to defend it or any at all. Uh, it avoids the difficulty in harmonizing specific passages with specific fulfillments. Uh, and that's plagued the historicist, the futurist, 
and the preterist view. Whenever you're trying to tie things in Revelation with either pastoral events or future events as well. Uh, it makes the book of Revelation applicable and relevant for all periods of church history, especially those suffering persecution. So those are some of the positive aspects of this view. However, there are some critical aspects as well. The first critical aspect is the book of Revelation itself claims to be a prophecy about things that would happen in the future. So because it's a prophecy about things happening in the future, then it would be tied to, to literal events that were to come. Um, another critical aspect of the view is reading spiritual meanings into the text uh, could lead to random personal interpretations. When you give people a license to interpret Revelation any way they want to, they will take a license to interpret Revelation the way they want to. Uh, so you have no set you know, interpretations. Uh, and sometimes when, when you don't have rules guiding you, you can misinterpret a lot. Therefore, an idealistic view could possibly be at the mercy of one's opinion instead of Scripture itself. But the fact that Revelation seems to predict, from the writer's standpoint, whether soon or far in the future, it seems to predict literal events that's going to happen that he's warning the church about. Um, not just giving good spiritual advice. Um, so, you know, while there's some appeal to the idealistic view is that the preferred, the true reason that John wrote Revelation, you know, probably not. If John wrote it as a you know, spiritual manual, he probably wouldn't have been so specific in a lot of things uh, and it being a prophecy itself. So even though there's some good things about this view, just like there's good things with every other view, there's also some critical things about this view. So where do we go from here? Uh, and I put this down here as not a quote view, but uh, N.T. Wright is a leading New Testament scholar and he kind of gives one of these uh, choose A, B, C, or D or all of the above. Uh, and he checks the all of the above box. But I, I just wanted to present this as well. The best course, is what Wright says, the best course seems to be an eclectic approach to the interpretation of Revelation. We must insist that the book would have been highly relevant to its first readers, who lived in a culture where this kind of book was much better known than it had been in the modern period. That means what John's writing would have been way more familiar to them than it is for us 2,000 years later trying to figure it all out. He says, There were specific challenges, and Revelation was written to meet them. We should not regard the problems facing the seven churches or the letter addressed to them as other than specific words to specific situations. At the same time, the book clearly envisions an eventful triumph over all the powers of evil, including death itself, which as Romans 8 or 1 Corinthians 15 has clearly not happened yet. So Wright says, you have to give some regard to the original audience. But also, he says, the book clearly envisions a triumph over all of humanity for Christ. And things that such as the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and you know, creation, all of creation being redeemed in Romans 8, he says it's clearly not happened. The preterist and the futurist views 
thus both have something going for them, but not everything. Then he says, at the same time, as with biblical prophecy more generally, the rich symbolic language invites multiple applications and interpretations. As the various systems of pagan power behave in characteristic ways, and the church is faced with the challenge both of understanding what is happening and acting appropriately. In other words, the symbolism makes it relevant to people in different ages facing similar circumstances. One should, in fact, read Revelation with a robust, robust biblical theological perspective in mind, ready to engage simultaneously with the concrete historical life in the first century Asia Minor and with the challenges posed by God's people by the worldviews and world events of our own day. So he kind of takes, grab a little bit of what's good from each of these views. You know, grab something that's, that speaks historically to those who first read it. Look for these future fulfillments of things that seem to have not been fulfilled in our future as concerns the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. But also don't disregard the fact that believers in every age suffer similar things as is written in the book of Revelation. You know, such as emperor worship and, you know, the, the state opposing the church and persecution and things happening of that nature. So looking at all of these views as a whole, the historical view, which was the major view, the futurist view, uh, which is the popular and you know, the most uh, established view of, of our day, uh, the preterist view, which is not as widespread and not as popular, but yet seems to have things going for it, plus the idealist view that speaks in more general terms or a little bit taken from all of them. So, in other words, who knows? 